Thank you for downloading the Two Cities Church podcast, where we are pushing back darkness by spreading the good news of King Jesus. And now, here is this week's message from Pastor Jeff Struker. Pastor Troy, if you believe he's altogether wonderful, say amen. amen. You can have a seat. Thank you. Big news this week. The global population passed the 8 billion mark. Did you hear this in the news? 8 billion people are alive right now on planet Earth for the first time ever in human history. Check this out, y'all. In less than 100 years ago, back in 1925, the world population was roughly 3 billion people. It took 35 years to go from 3 billion to 4 billion, and then we started picking up speed. And then we started adding billion after billion. And what people think is if we continue going at the rate we're at today, by the year 2050, we'll be at roughly 10 billion people on the planet. Think about 10 billion souls that will live for eternity. And if you think back to not only all of the people that are on the planet, but everybody that's ever lived in human history, there is one life that stands out very different from all of the rest. It's the Lord Jesus Christ, whose life was so different that apart from all of the other human beings in human history, very powerful people, very important people, people that had a big impact on a lot of the world, this life was so different that it changed the calendars all over the, all over the world. People recognize this name 2,000 years later. Why? What made Jesus so different that instead of Muhammad, instead of uh, Gandhi, instead of Nelson Mandela or Dr. King, we're still talking about him all over the planet thousands of years after his death. What made that such a big deal? Well, that's what we're going to talk about today in this sermon. And to be honest with you, I've been wrestling with the words from the Bible all week long as I was trying to prepare a sermon for you. And it occurred to me that I just don't think the human language, not this language, not any language, I don't think the human language has the right words to stress how big of a deal this moment in the Bible is for all of human history, for all 8 billion people living on the planet. And so what I want to do for just a second is I'm going to pray and just ask God, God, would you help us to really understand just how big of a deal this really was? So can I pray for just a second over us? Father, would you cause the words of the Bible to just come alive today? Would you cause us to get a glimpse, just a small glimpse of what these three people saw that first Easter morning. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's what I really want you to understand. Before we even get into John chapter 20, I want you to understand what a big deal the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is. And I put it on the screens like this on purpose. If Jesus really did come back out of the tomb alive, if that's possible, then blank. 
And I want you right now to just imagine your wildest dream. I want you to come up with your biggest idea, with your greatest request, like your most outlandish miracle. I want you to think about that for right now. And I promise you, no matter, no matter what it is on your mind, it's not bigger than what you could put in that blank right there. And you may be thinking to yourself, wait a second, Jeff, you don't know how big and how bold I could dream. And my response to you would be, you don't understand how big and how significant this event is. If you can possibly imagine something that you think is bigger than this incident. You see, all 8 billion people on the planet, all of us are heading in the same direction. All of us will one day pass away. And death is very final, and it's for all of us. And death really is the end if this doesn't happen. But if this happens, then the end really isn't the end anymore. And there is something waiting for us after death. And I want you to hear from the Bible today just how significant this moment is. We're studying through the book of John. That's why we're in John chapter 20 today. And really, this should be an Easter message. It's Thanksgiving week in the United States. And I just want to remind you, Thanksgiving is an extremely important, theologically important holiday. On the scale of holidays in the U.S., you have Easter, number one, by a landslide. Christmas, number two on that scale. And then Thanksgiving comes number three. And if you know our history, it was in the middle of our darkest days in the spring of 1863 that President Abraham Lincoln, in the middle of our bloodiest period in our country's history, right in the heart of the Civil War, that President Abraham Lincoln reminded the people, we have a lot to be thankful for, so don't just focus on the bad Let's remember to thank God for some of the good stuff in life. So I'm going to try to fill in that blank for you today. And I'm going to try to fill it in from the characters that we read about on that first Easter morning, John chapter 20. We're going to start in verse 1 in just a second. But I want you to understand that if the tomb really is empty, if that's possible, then you can courageously face the future. And the truth is, every person on the planet struggles to some degree, some a little bit, some a lot, with anxiety about the future. Maybe you are wrestling with the economy and this global recession that most of the world is in right now, or at least at the edge of right now, and you're worried about the future financially. Maybe for you, it's a health thing and you're really concerned because they've taken the test, but you haven't got the results from the doctor back, and it's freaking you out right now. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe you're winding down this semester of school, and you're not sure you're going to keep your GPA, not sure you're going to graduate, whatever it is. Listen to this, y'all. This is so pervasive that people all over the planet, all stages of life, all ages, face the future with great anxiety. The Journal of American Medical Association of Psychiatry, like the premier journal of mental health in America, released a study last week or last month 
And the study said, do you know how bad this is in America? Check this out. It starts for some people as a toddler. As early as 24 months old, toddlers are freaking out about the future. And that same article said, by the time that children become early teens, 12, 11, or 12, 13, 14 years old, this anxiety about the future can turn into full-blown depression because they're sitting there and they've gone through COVID and they're facing recession and they're looking at the future and they're like, I've got no hope. What the Bible is describing for us today is how you can face the future with hope. So now we're ready to open the Bible. And there's a lady who appears on the scene, the first person that we read about in John chapter 20. Her name is Mary Magdalene. And I want you to just put yourself, if you can for a second, in her shoes. She's put all of her hope, all of her trust into Jesus. And then it's all been crushed right in front of her when she watched him bleed out on a cross. And she saw them put his body in a tomb. And in her mind, it's over. My future is ruined because I placed it all on him. And now he's dead. And she gets up early on Sunday morning to go try to honor her dead Savior by at least treating his body and giving his body the respect that it deserves. And this is where the story picks up for us. We're in John chapter 20, verse 1. Listen to what this is like for Mary Magdalene. On the first day of the week, that's Sunday for them, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. She saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb, so she went running to Simon Peter and to the other disciple, the one Jesus loved. By the way, that's a reference to John, the guy who writes this. And she said to them, listen to her words, very important words. They, who's the they here, Mary? They have taken the Lord out of the tomb. And we don't know where they put him. And Mary is stressed out right now because of what she just saw when she got to the empty tomb. Now, if you're reading this passage of the Bible in the original language, the language is actually quite vivid. Because when it talks about the tomb, the stone at the entrance of the tomb being moved, that language that it uses is saying, it didn't just get rolled back a little bit. No, it got totally removed. Generally speaking, this tomb that's cut out of a stone cliff would have a giant uh, stone uh, wheel that's rolled down a groove and in front of the tomb to close the tomb off. And it's actually there just to keep the smell out. Basically, that's what it's for. It would take a lot of horsepower or some strong men to roll that stone back up the, up the hill, up the groove. The language that the Bible is using right now is that stone didn't get rolled up the hill. It got completely pulled out of the, groom and, uh, the groove, and now it's laying off to the side. That's what Mary sees when she shows up. And not only does she see that the stone has been moved, but she uses this language like they've taken him out of the tomb. And the out-of-the-tomb language is very vivid, and it's very final, like that tomb is busted wide open 
and you ain't going to close it back up again, something happened to that tomb. And in her mind, it was vandalism. In fact, she even uses this language on the screens. They did something to the body. And I don't know what happened to the body, but they did something, and the body's not there anymore. Now, Bible scholars try to decide who did she think that they were. And most people, I tend to believe them, think she's referring to the religious leaders. Like, just to further discredit him, they came to the tomb, and they desecrated the tomb, and they pulled the body out and took the body away. Well, the problem with this, and Mary may not know this, is the religious leaders are so concerned about this guy that even after he's dead, they go to Pilate and they say, hey, that brother promised that when he went to the tomb, he would come back again. So Pilate, I need you to post a guard at the tomb to make sure that nothing, uh, nothing bad happens there. Can you imagine what Pilate was thinking? You want me to send some of my soldiers to make sure that nobody breaks into the tomb? Because that stuff happened all the time in Jesus' day. Tomb robbers would go in there and steal the valuables. But what the religious leaders were actually saying is, you want, we want you to post a guard so that nobody breaks out of the tomb. Not so that nobody breaks in. We want you to make sure that nobody breaks out. Now the guards are gone now the stone is gone. Now the tomb is busted wide open. And in Mary's mind, uh, the body's missing. And somebody desecrated this thing. Notice what's not going through her mind. All she can see is my hope for the future was destroyed when I watched that man die on the cross. And I saw him die with my own eyes and dead people don't come back out of the, the grave again. So now I was just gonna go and try to honor his body, but it's too late. A few years ago, Dawn and I, we were traveling and we took a little family vacation to Tennessee. And while we were there, we visited the home and the gravesite of President Andrew Jackson. But the curators and the custodians of the estate said you can't see the president's tomb because it's just been desecrated the first and only time in american history that any dead president's tomb has ever been desecrated his tomb has just been desecrated and now we've got to go clean it up and now we've got to fix old hickory president andrew jackson's tomb and i was thinking to myself that's about the stupidest thing that I've ever heard of in my life. Like, you're not hurting Andrew Jackson by desecrating his tomb. He's in the ground. It doesn't bother him what you do to his tomb. Why is this such a big deal? Why would you even bother with it? What Mary is not thinking about right now, what the other disciples that show up on the scene are not thinking about, is Jesus' promise. Jesus said this before he went to the cross. I lay my life down. I take my life back up again. I have the power to give my life up. I have the power to take my life back up again. And Jesus wanted to make sure that people didn't get confused by what he was saying. So he said, nobody can take it away from me. I give it up. This is the language that John used just a couple of weeks ago when he said, Jesus 
gave up his life and breathed his last. In other words, it wasn't from loss of blood or loss of oxygen that he died. He freely gave his life up on the cross. Now Mary's at the tomb, and the only thing going through her mind is they desecrated the tomb of my religious leader, and his body's missing, and I don't know what to do next. But I want you to remember, church, that if he really did come out of the grave, it's the hope for your future, which means you can face your future and you don't have to stress about the economy. You don't have to stress about your health. You don't have to stress about relationships. None of that stuff needs to worry you because the one who has the power over life and death also has your future in the palm of his hand. And I need to promise you this, not only if that's possible, not only is your future in the palm of his hand, but I need you to understand that you get the ultimate do-over in life. Now, there's something very sick, very twisted about American society today. It's called cancel culture. And cancel culture is you make one wrong statement, you say one thing wrong. Maybe you didn't even mean it in the wrong way, but if it was taken out of context, you say one wrong thing, make one mistake, and we're going to cancel you, which means you lose your job, you lose your reputation in society for one mistake, one time. The reason why that's so sick, the reason why it's so wrong is that nobody's perfect which means every single one of us in this room have said something, and the moment it left our mouth, we're thinking, ooh, I wish I could get those words back. Everybody has made a decision in this room, and you think, I wish I could go back and undo that decision because I'm going to have to live with that decision for the rest of my life. All of us have done something and said, ooh, I wish I could undo that. I wish I could get a do-over on that one. And cancel culture says, you don't get a do-over because you don't ever get to make a mistake. But what the tomb says is, you get the ultimate do-over. You get a chance to face whatever life throws at you tomorrow. And those mistakes don't have to stick with you. They don't have to haunt you forever. So would you, for just a second, put yourself in Peter's shoes? Because a couple of days ago in the story of Jesus, Jesus said to his disciples, I'm going to the cross and they're going to kill me and you guys are going to bail on me. And Peter said, the rest of those losers, they may bail on you, Jesus, but I will never bail on you. I will follow you to my grave. And Jesus said, oh, really, big boy? Well, tonight before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And sure enough, when the pressure got high, Peter folded, and he failed Jesus so bad that the Bible says that he wept bitterly after denying him three times. And now, I can't even really imagine what's going through Peter's mind after they've crucified him, and in his mind, it's over, I got no chance at the future, and I can't go back and undo the mistake that I've made. And then all of a sudden, Mary Magdalene comes running back to find Peter and John, the guy who writes this story for us, and says, hey, y'all, the body's missing. And listen to what Peter does, starting in verse 7. At that, Peter and the other disciple went out, headed for the tomb. Now, the two were running together, 
But check this out. The other disciple outran Peter and got to the tomb faster. Do you know what John is saying right here? Hey, in a foot race, guess who's faster? Me or Peter? John says, I outran him. I got to the tomb first, but John is also saying, I need you to recognize that Peter is bolder than me because look at what Peter does next. I get to the tomb first and Peter got to the tomb and I stooped down and looked inside. And then John tells us what he saw when he looked inside. I saw linen cloths lying there, but I didn't go in. Then following, because I'm faster than Peter, Peter shows up later, and Simon Peter also came, but he just busted right inside. He runs into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there and the wrapping that had been on Jesus' head. But this one was different. Not lying with the linen cloths, but this thing was folded up and in a separate place by itself. Let me ask you, this last part that's on the screens right now, does this sound like desecration and grave robber? No, in fact, I think the reason why John is recording this for us is first, I was there, I saw this with my own eyes. And by the way, when he talks about stooping down and looking in, he's using language like you would go to a grocery store or a department store. You would look in the window. You can see what's happening in there, but you're not inside there. You have a very clear idea of what's going on inside that store by looking through the store window. That's the language that John is using. I looked inside, and here's what I saw. Nicodemus and Joseph, when they took Jesus' body off the cross, they wrapped him up in some strips of cloth and they stuffed some spices in there to mask the smell. And I saw the strips of cloth. They're just laying all over the place. But then I noticed something. I noticed this linen piece that you would typically wrap a Jewish body's head with. This was separate. This was different. It was designed to kind of honor the body. And this body, or this piece of cloth, isn't just thrown haphazard, kind of like when somebody would break into a home and do a home robbery. They would just leave stuff everywhere. No, this thing was folded up, and it was set off to the side. And I'm telling you, it was set like that on purpose. What John is saying is, somebody did that on purpose, and whoever did it, did it to honor or respect the head that this cloth was just wrapped in. Now, John says, I was running... Peter was running. I'm faster than Peter is, probably because I'm younger and I got fresher legs. But I get there first and I pause outside. And here's why I pause outside. Because in John's day, if you go inside a tomb, you become ceremonially unclean. And now you got to go through the whole nut roll of becoming ceremonially clean again. And I wait outside because that's what a good Jewish boy does, but not Peter. Peter busted right inside, and he's got to see this with his own eyes. And I can't help but think to myself, you know why Peter's running inside? Because Peter is still hurting about the mistake that he made. It's fresh on Peter's mind. I told him I would never forsake him. And then when that servant girl asked me, are you one of his followers? I denied him, not once but I did it three times and I can't undo what I did. I need a do-over, but I can't undo it. So those two disciples, they don't do a Sunday morning stroll. They run to the tomb at full speed and they got to see with their own eyes what Mary said. At this point, 
None of them believe that he's back. They just think somebody came and somebody desecrated the body. What Peter will learn in just a couple of verses is that he's back. And if he's back, my biggest mistakes, they don't have to haunt me for the rest of my life. No matter how many mistakes I make, it doesn't have to hang over my head for the rest of my life like the promise of Easter is the promise of forgiveness, the promise of resurrection, the ultimate do-over. The wages of sin is what, church? Death. And we deserve that because of our mistakes and our failures. But the gift of God, according to the book of Romans, is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And this is the ultimate do-over. So I got a challenge for you. For everybody in this room who has access to a social media account, I got a short video that I want to challenge you with. And if you don't have social media, all good. Send a text, send an email, make a phone call every day this week, and just tell somebody what you have to be thankful for. It shouldn't just be on Thanksgiving Day that we tell the world we're thankful because we got lots and lots of stuff to be thankful for. So here's the hashtag thankful challenge. Check this video out. why I'm putting this challenge in front of you. First Thessalonians says that it's God's will for you to be thankful, not just one day of the year, but every day. But not only is it God's will, I'm just going to shoot straight with you. It's good for you to think about something good that's in your life. Because if you're not careful, you can focus on all of the bad. And chances are there's plenty of bad in your life. But if you will take a moment I am convinced you can find one thing every day this week to be thankful for. And why don't you send somebody a text and tell them what you're thankful for? Why don't you send an email, make a phone call, put it out on social media? What's your hashtag thankful for? I'm not trying to start a social media campaign right now. I'm asking you to do this for you. Not for God. Not even for your friends or family. I'm asking you to do this because it's good for your soul to get up tomorrow and to think about a good thing that you have to be thankful for instead of just focusing on all the bad because all of us have plenty of bad in our life. But if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you have some good things to be thankful for. And if you're sitting there and you're saying, Jeff, I can't think of anything, well, I've just told you two of them. You can face your future now and you don't have to freak out about it. And all of those mistakes that you've made in your life they don't haunt you to the grave. Actually, you get the ultimate do-over. I'll give you a third one right now. If the tomb is empty, if that's possible, then you get a hope that death itself 
cannot stop. And now you're ready to hear from John, the writer of this book, because when John is standing there and looking inside this tomb, he still doesn't get it. All of those words that Jesus preached to the crowds, they didn't make sense. It didn't click with any of them. John tells us this today, until he sees it with his own eyes. And that's the moment where he realizes, wait a second, if that man really did come out of the grave again, They're going to lay my body in the ground one day just like they did him. And if he came out of the grave again, then I'm, thank you very much, then I'm coming out of the grave again too. And if that's the case, I got nothing to freak out about. So John is standing there at the edge of this tomb and listen to the words next in John chapter 20, verses 8 through 10. Um, apparently these verses are, are wrong, and I need to read them from my iPad, so check it out. Here's what the Bible says. The other disciple who reached the tomb first then also went in. Listen to this language. John just goes into the tomb, and he sees what Peter sees. The other disciple reached the tomb, went in, saw, and then the Bible uses this word, saw and believed, for they didn't yet understand the Scriptures that he must rise from the dead. And then the the disciples returned to the place where they were staying. What the Bible is saying for us is, first they had to see it because no one imagined that that brother was alive right now. All of them just assumed somebody came and desecrated the tomb. They took his body. Don't even know where the body is right now. But he's still dead. And then John sees the strips of cloth. Then John sees the folded up cloth from his head and he realizes, wait a second. They didn't come and desecrate this tomb. They didn't come and steal the body. That man came out of the tomb alive. And listen, anybody who's been beat so bad that he can't even carry his cross up the hill, they have to grab somebody to help carry his cross up the hill, doesn't have the physical strength to remove this stone, let alone to pull it out of its groove and to smash the door wide open. But what John sees is he did this by his own power. And if he did this, now his sermon makes sense. Because he said, nobody can take my life from me. I'm going to lay it down. And by the way, three days later, just like Jonah was in the belly of a great fish, I will come back out of that grave alive again. And nobody could understand it. They all thought, that brother's crazy. I don't even know what he's talking about right now until they see the empty tomb. And I'm convinced that this is the moment where John not only is thinking of Jesus, John is thinking about John. And if he comes back again, maybe I'm coming back again too. Maybe there's hope for me after the grave. Maybe the grave really isn't that final. For those of you who've seen my daughter Abigail in the back of the room, she's pregnant, like really, really, really pregnant. Tomorrow is her due date. And it occurred to me, 8 billion people are walking on the planet right now. The moment that that child is born, listen to me, church, from the very first breath that that boy takes, 
He will start the long, slow march towards the grave, and no one and nothing can stop it. Eat as much healthy foods, exercise as long as you want. Maybe you add a year or two of life to you. Maybe you add some quality to your life, but it isn't going to stop the fact that we're all going to die. That brand new baby will start the march towards the grave the moment they take their first breath. All of us are going to end up in the same place. But according to the Bible, what separates Jesus from every person, all 8 billion of them on the planet today, everyone that's ever lived, is he was the only guy who had power over the grave. And by his own abilities became what the Bible refers to as the first fruits of the resurrection which means what happened to him is going to happen to his followers. If you absolutely, totally, radically, unconditionally surrender to him. In the 1930s, the world was going through perhaps one of the worst economic crises in history, a global depression at the end of World War I. And by 1938, the world was on the precipice of a second world war. The first one was supposed to be the world, the war to end all wars. Now we're at the edge of what looks like another world war. And the world is, is at uh, its tipping point right now. And there's a couple of guys in the United States, Jewish boys, who write a story about a superhuman person who has the ability to fix this mess that they're in. These authors are Joe Siegel and John somebody, um, John Schuster, and they write an article, they put a little bit of imagery to it, and they describe Superman, June 1938. Superman is so wildly successful because the world is plunging into evil and into darkness that it generates an entire category, a whole genre of literature that doesn't exist. Superman is the first superhero. It becomes the superhero comic industry that we know of today that has trillions of dollars of entertainment dollars. And in the movie, The Justice League, the fastest, smartest, richest, strongest people on the planet are facing evil that is too big and too great for us. All of us together can't fix this. I really think the guys that are making the movie Justice League are trying to portray death and the grave when it shows this evil. And they realize we need a superhero. We need a superman, a superhuman being. But the problem is he's dead. And we can't fix our problems if he's laying cold and in the grave. So they concoct this idea of resurrecting Superman. I'm going to show you a clip from the movie Justice League when they bring Superman back to life again. And keep in mind, the Jewish boys that are writing this story are saying, if God's anointed, if Messiah, if the Christ would show up, then this mess that we're living in wouldn't be uh, overwhelming. But I want you to pay close attention to this clip. I want you to pay close attention to the end of the clip and the look on everyone's faces 
when they say Superman hovering in the skies again. Check out this clip from the movie Justice League. I was afraid that no stuff a wolf will come for. You know that already. Continue. I strongly advise against activation. Barry, I'm initiating the countdown. Five. Five. This is a bad idea. But we just keep going. Four. 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 We need to abort now. Just do it. Three. Three. Two. Two. This course is irreversible. One. 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 This action is irreversible. Go! What they should have titled this scene from the movie Justice League is Easter. Because if there really was a Superman who had all power and all abilities at his fingertips, if he really did die and he's back again, then we don't have anything to worry about. And what the writer of the Bible is trying to say is Jesus is far more super than Superman. And he doesn't need a charge from Flash. He doesn't need all of this technology to bring him back. I lay my, down li my life down. I take my life back up again. No one can take it away from me. And the promise of the resurrection is waiting for you, church. If this is possible, then anything is possible. You don't have to worry about the future. 
And you don't have to stress over the mistakes that you've made in the past. And death itself is no longer the end. It's just a door that you step through and Jesus is waiting for you on the other side. And I'm hoping that somebody who's been wrestling with your eternity is watching this broadcast. I hope somebody from Two Cities Church reached out to you and said, you need to check this out because you're not really certain where you're going to spend eternity. In just a second, I want to pray for you. I'm going to pray that this is the moment where you realize if God can raise his son Jesus from the grave, then he can raise you from the grave of sin and your mistakes and your failures and literally raise you out of your grave also. And you go through this life-transforming experience like me and billions of other people like me. But Christians, would you please remember the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is coursing through your veins right now. And the Holy Spirit of the living God, he doesn't walk with you. He walks inside of you to help you deal with whatever you're going to go through this week. You have resurrection power inside of you, so you got nothing to worry about. Would you just... We hope you enjoyed this message. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and to stay in touch by joining our email list through the link in the show notes. Have a great week.